what do management consultants do? I think it's an important question because this is a global industry worth as much as a trillion dollars. And yet if you ask somebody like my dad, he drives a taxi for a living, what is a management consultant? He wouldn't have the faintest idea. Yet they play an increasingly prominent role in the public sector with extraordinarily large public contracts, whether it's test and trace or delivering healthcare websites to the United States. And of course, they're in business too. A new book by Mariana Mazzucato, The Big Con, makes some pretty provocative statements. It says that actually, consultants don't just undermine democracy, they lead to less effective government. Mariana, welcome to Downstream. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. How are you doing more generally at the moment? Oh, Post-COVID. God, you really want to know? Post-COVID, um, come on. Oh, my God. Actually, fine. I'm thrilled because this week I got to speak a lot with the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, who I think is the hero of the 21st century. It's true. She's in the UK at the moment, right? Well, actually, so I was or just in Barbados. Was. I was in Barbados oh, two right. uh, weeks ago working with her, but she was supposed to be in um, London this week, but we ended up having her virtually. She was at the first event we had for this book, the launch event at the RSA. She was in dialogue with me about why... We need not only financial space, which is what her big global mission is about, but also the kind of fiscal space and state capacity, which our new book kind of looks at why we don't have that. And it was a great conversation. So your new book, you have many books. They're all very good. I have to say, actually, this is one of my favorites, The Big Con. But you're only halfway through, I can tell. No, no, no. It's <laughs> it's, I've, got, I've made notes. In. No, no, no. I finished this last night. Um and it's going to sound strange how a book about the consulting industry is quite riveting. I think yeah. pretty people watching this probably won't believe me. They think I might be trying to flatter you. But it yeah. is because there are so many amazing stories. Yeah. Um, but let's start from the top. So what are consultants and what do they do? So first of all, there's different types of consultants. Some are more on the counting side. Some are more on the strategy side. So, you know, Deloitte versus McKinsey. Um, but there's also other types of consultants, which we talk about in the book, even though we don't focus on them, which have been organizations like Serco and G4S, where the government has actually decided to outsource a lot of its activities to those companies. We kind of treat them differently, but they're all part of the same phenomena of basically the decapacitation, if that's a word. I don't know if that sounds more Italian than English, of government. So what do they do? They consult, they advise. And one, you know, but we look at it as an industry. This is a very important point. So there's many different types of consultants. We, you might have a head teacher of a school who might consult. A nurse could consult. A doctor could consult. Academics, myself, we can consult. But that's based on our expertise. It's not actually core to um, our lives. You know, I might consult based on 20 years of research in an area. Again, a head teacher might have great knowledge about the schooling system. We look at a business model of the consulting industry as a sector which is making lots of money consulting and where that business model has lots of different problems. It has conflicts of interest. It has lack of transparency and kind of a veil of secrecy. And especially we look at its role in even though it's not its fault, because we look also at governments and we ask, why do you allow yourself to get captured in some ways by consultants so easily? Um, we look at the co-evolution between consulting and some of modern problems in capitalism today from financialization to outsourcing. So you said it's a big sector. Some people watching this will be familiar with the names, McKinsey, Deloitte, et cetera. How big is it? What kind of numbers Close are we talking? Close to a trillion um, per year. Wow. Yeah. 
and also it's rising. So uh, the subtitle here, turn it around so I can remember what our subtitle <laughs> is, The Big Con, How the Consulting Industry Weakens Our Businesses, Infantilizes Our Governments, and Warps Our Economies. The Infantilizes Our Governments bit came from a quote by a Tory, so conservative lord, Lord Agnew, who during uh, COVID, on the back of all the contracts that he was witnessing that the government was using to bring in consultants, you might remember that Deloitte was charged with the test and trace system, uh, but also with Brexit, lots of money went to consultants. He said, oh my God, we are infantilizing Whitehall. In other words, if we keep outsourcing the role of government, we will stop learning. We will actually become like babies who haven't learned yet. We won't be doing, so we're not learning by doing. And this is actually something I've been talking about for decades. So I was very, um, not surprised, but it was very interesting that it was actually coming from the conservative side of government because the it's not necessarily intuitive that that's where it would have come from. The numbers here are really impressive in terms of the growth, and it's something I'm pulling out of the book. This isn't my own personal research. This is so memorable as a fact. When Margaret Thatcher becomes prime minister in 1979, the British state is spending £6 million a year on consultants. When she leaves in 1990, so we're talking 30 years plus, £246 million. So it's gone up more than 40 times. Yeah. Uh, and it's obviously gone up considerably more than then. This is hardly shrinking the state, is it? Well, that's what's so interesting. First of all, um, you know, you mentioned Thatcher. So that's the bit that might be intuitive. You might think, okay, a government, a Reaganite government, a Thatcherite government, which is, I don't want to say anti-state, because actually both of them spent a lot on things like war, <laughs> right? I mean, actually what Reagan shrunk was the welfare state. My first book, The Entrepreneurial State, I actually looked at state investment in the U.S., also during the Reagan years, actually rising around, whether it's the military-industrial complex, but even the National Institutes of Health, which in the United States spent billions just last year, $42 billion, on drug innovation. That happened also under Ronald Reagan. So we should also just remember that that's sort of been a propaganda that they put out but didn't necessarily believe themselves. There was lots of state investment in both of those governments. It was actually more a war on the welfare state and really um, taking away a lot of the social fabric of society, which we've also seen recently in the UK with austerity for the last 10 years, all the cuts you know, to very, very concrete areas, whether it's after-school clubs, uh, uh, youth centers, mental health. I'm talking about what I just noticed in my community, let alone the kind of more macroeconomic figures. Um, that's very different from just saying anti-state, right? Because there was actually lots of investment that went elsewhere. Um, anyway, so what's interesting is if you look at kind of a more conservative, in quotes, neoliberal government, you might intuitively think they want to reduce state investment and bring in the private sector, both through privatization, but also consultification of government. So the, that figure you just mentioned from six to 246 million is part of that. But then there's two questions. One, the one you just said, that cost a lot of money. So in terms of actual expenditure by the state, it didn't necessarily reduce it. But was that really the point? of Thatcher's government? I would argue no. It was actually to dismantle, in some ways, the ambition of the state or the structures of the state. And by bringing in consultants, regardless of how much it costs, and it costs a lot, you are helping to render the state actually in some ways weaker, at least the structures you might not necessarily care about, you know, health, education, public transport. Again, very different on the military. Um, and yet, 
one of the things we talk about in the book is how the real door opened to the consultants actually under new labor. So if you don't really have a strong idea of what the state is for, you want the state, so it's not the neoliberal idea of no state, you want the state, but you want it to look efficient and responsible and business friendly, then ultimately you bring in business sector metrics into the state apparatus. So cost-benefit analysis, net present value, and the whole idea in economics, which is that at best the state should fix market failures. So all my work has been saying that that's actually not very smart. What we actually need for all the problems we have, whether it's climate, health, digital, is co-creating and co-shaping not just the market, but the economy. Economic growth has not just a, a rate, but a direction. The Sustainable Development Goals, there's 17 of them. That's about directionality, whether it's about hunger, poverty, climate, the digital divide, health. This is the UN Sustainable Development yeah, Goals. Yeah, sorry, I always forget. Not everyone knows about the SDGs. <laughs> My kids actually went to state schools here in London where they sung about the SDGs. Oh, wow, that's so progress. I think actually, interestingly, young kids probably know more about the Sustainable Development Goals than you and me. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, very important. We've had them since 2015, not that long. They require huge ambition. They require mission. They require collaboration, collective intelligence, co-investment, so on and so forth. And what my work has been looking at since the entrepreneurial state is how if we don't have kind of a proper understanding of the state as anything more than fixing market failures, we will always be too little too late. We will always be just reacting. We will at best be filling the gap so that literally even public space will be just the space that you're allowed to fill up when private space is not there. Think of it even architecturally in some ways, but really in, in terms of even public goods in economics, the word public good sounds good. There's two words. One is good. If you actually look at the framing of it in economics, it's fixing a market failure problem that occurs when we have positive externalities. The new labor thing is really interesting for me because Obviously, they spent a great deal of money on things like the NHS compared to the Tories, uh, historic amounts of money. They reduced child poverty, pensioner poverty. So people say, how could you say this? But actually, when you go into the nuts and bolts of, of how they did government. So for instance, I find this fascinating. You talk about this new delivery unit, which is created under Tony Blair, which, which basically seems to me to be saying tacitly that government should just be done by management consultancy, or it should be a major part of the state's capacity. And it's not something which is just bolted on or an afterthought. It's it's central to how New Labour wants to run things. Yeah. So one of the things I was just talking to uh, Rosie about, she's my co-author, she's actually one of my PhD students at the Institute for Innovation and Public uh, Purpose, is that in some ways you could sum up what you've just said is as the fact that New Labour had an idea of private-public partnerships, not public-private partnerships, mm. right? So a public-private partnerships, I would argue, is what we had with the moon landing. It was a public idea. There was strong public directionality. But ultimately, there was 400,000 people involved, so many different private sector industries from nutrition, materials, electronics, software. It wasn't just aerospace. Uh, and what government had to do was to redesign all its different tools. At the time, it was especially not only procurement, so government as purchaser, to catalyze as much bottom-up experimentation towards that goal. And the goal was getting to the moon and back in a short amount of time. I would argue that what New Labor did was kind of forget, you know, what's the actual mission, the moonshot around health, around public education, around public transport. If you're going to bring in the private sector, you better make sure you're very clear what the public goal is so you're working together to actually deliver on the moonshot, as opposed to just what we end up having, having which is a lot of private activity 
in areas that used to be publicly run. And it's not about saying that's wrong. I think it's actually wrong to say it's about private or nationalization, kind of in a Corbynite kind of way. I think that's where Corbyn went wrong. It's about how do you actually organize that partnership so it's truly about actually doing something good, purpose-oriented for people. Let's fast forward to Keir Starmer, because this morning he's talked about missions rather than pledges. Now, a, a, a cynic would say, well, he's exhausted the rhetoric of pledges because, of course, he's broken so many from his leadership election. Oh. But for somebody like yourself, yeah. actually, no, this is substantially different. This means something quite different. But reading his, his missions, crime, decarbonisation, they seem quite sort of ambiguous. Is the, mm. is the point of a mission that it's actually quite specific and measurable? So, I mean, I've had the honor to, I don't want to say be responsible, but for having written about missions and having actually seen it put into policy. Mm -hmm. So I first wrote about it, actually, for a long time, but when I first wrote about it where it became policy was 2017 for the European Commission. I said, look, guys, you're just talking all this talk about climate, about inclusion. It's not getting us any more inclusive or sustainable. So I said, what would a mission-oriented approach look like? And I wrote two reports on the back of which the European Union now has five missions and a large chunk of the Horizon program, which was 90 billion euros, is now targeted through these missions instruments. So what's a mission, at least in my approach, is you begin with a challenge. We talked about the sustainable development goals, but they're very broad, right? Turning them into moonshots. So SDG, Sustainable Development Goal 13, uh, you can turn it into something much more clear that you can actually answer yes or no, did you achieve it? Similar to going to the moon and back in a short amount of time, very clear, you can answer yes or no. So whether it's net zero in a particular region, whether it's getting all the plastic out of the ocean, if we're looking at SDG 14, but the main thing is to frame it so it actually requires investment and innovation across multiple sectors of the economy. Because the old industrial strategy in the UK was very similar to what we've seen globally, which is it was just a list of sectors. So in the UK under Vince Cable, it was aerospace, automobiles, the financial sector, the creative industry, and finance. Don't ask me how I remember that because I don't remember what I did yesterday. Anyway, so the idea of a mission-oriented approach for industrial strategy would be to say, why did you just make up those random five sectors? Did they just lobby their way up? Why not think of actually challenges like clean growth, healthy aging, uh, sustainable mobility, and so on, and then get all your different sectors to work together towards particular missions underneath that, and then again, change those tools on the ground to foster that investment towards that. But that requires knowledge, capacity, implementation, uh, ability to actually then change the current status of like procurement, which is just money being given from the public sector to the private sector, to be outcomes-oriented. Something, by the way, that many countries rediscovered with COVID, mm. outcomes-oriented procurement. It's often a wartime tool which is interesting, right? Wars, people want to win wars, so they take them seriously. If you look at the public-private partnership in a war, when, I've, I've learned this in the US, when the Ministry of Defense, the Department of Defense funds health, because sometimes they do, because soldiers get sick in the war, they don't get messed about by the pharmaceutical industry, because they want to win the war. They want the soldiers to have access to the medicines that the Ministry of Defense funded. When it's the Ministry of Health, in normal times, somehow we forget that the prices of the drugs should reflect that public contribution, that the intellectual property rights should not be abused to just become extraction tools by the sector and so on. So a missions approach has to lead to change. It should be a source of discomfort. I often tell ministers and policymakers, if you're getting really cozy with this idea and it's just kind of a blah, 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 you obviously don't 
understand it because it should actually create change in how you work with the private sector. You need conditions attached, for example. In France, under COVID, the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, put strong conditions on Renault and Air France to get access to the COVID-19 bailout program. Uh, why? Because they had a very clear mission around, or challenge actually, around uh, clean growth. They had to commit to lowering their carbon emissions to get any public money. In this country, where we're not used to having that conditionality, EasyJet got $600 million, no conditions attached. So Keir Starmer, if he's interested in emissions, has to then immediately talk about a new social contract with business. Let me stick a pin in this. I've actually got a question for you about China now you've said all that. But these are the missions from Keir Starmer. Secure the highest sustained growth in the G7. I mean, at least that's measurable, right? But then build an NHS fit for the future. Make Britain's streets safe. Break down the barriers to opportunity at every stage. Make Britain a clean energy superpower. Those those last four just seem so ambiguous. And, you know, the line, you, you know, you, you can only manage what you measure. How do you measure progress in any of those things? Or am I being unfair? Are those the kinds of things that you would call missions? I would call those mission areas. So I think it's actually, well, first of all, I should, con, you know, we should congratulate him for actually even having a strategy for basically looking at those areas as ways that we would redirect an economy. Because sure. there, there, I mean, now we have a problem with growth, but in general, the problem in the UK was not lack of growth. It was a problematic form of growth. It's a form of growth that is led by consumption, not investment. That consumption is led by private debt. Real incomes have not been rising very much in this country, so there's a lot of credit and private debt in the system to the point that private debt to disposable income in the UK is close to what it was just before the financial crisis, and that's what caused the financial crisis. So you'd think people would be like, ooh, problems. <laughs> very few people are talking about this. Um, labor is not talking about it, neither are the Tories, so the unsustainable level of private debt which is interesting if you think about it, because we always talk about public debt. Um, so, so it's very important, I think, to have those mission areas as a way to talk about the need to have investment-led growth, because all those areas are going to require investment. We've also had financialized growth in this country, where a lot of companies are making profits, but not necessarily reinvesting those profits into the economy. So anyway, so as soon as you talk about those bold areas... The question is, what does that then mean for the design of, of policy? What does it mean for an industrial strategy? What does it mean for a procurement strategy? And I think the challenge is, so the first one I would say is not even a mission area. That's just economic growth. And that's going to happen as, an, as a result if you get the other right. stuff right. If you have an innovation policy and an industrial strategy that catalyze and excite a lot of different actors that then invest, collaborate, do those moonshots across different spaces, growth will, will hopefully kind of result from that because they all require investment and innovation, which can lead to productivity increases, for example. But the other ones could be mission areas, right? Um, but the question is, what are they? So keeping streets safe, I mean, this is something that I think is incredibly important because I've seen how in London, and I just happen to live in London, on the back of all the austerity that we had uh, in this country, the social fabric at the community level was really uh, uh, broken. And so the rise in knife crime, for example. So you could have a mission, at the city level, right? Because a lot of these missions might be uh, talked about nationally, but then they have to resonate with communities where you might have, uh, you know, uh, citizen assemblies, you might have different types of democratic fora also where people think about those missions. I, I only say that because I've worked on missions also in Camden, where I live, and we have the Camden Renewal Commission that I co-chair with Georgia Gould. And one of our um, missions that we thought about for Camden actually did have to do with youth safety. And the idea there would be, how do we look at, for example, knife crime, not just from policing, 
right? So, so that's the kind of result. But if knife crime is actually the symptom of lots of other problems, think of all the social and economic determinants of crime, where a lot of the both victims but also the perpetrators often come from broken homes, homes where there's a lot of problems, how can you really think of that, of that problem in a way that bring lots of different branches of government together to think holistically with an all-of-government approach. That's a key factor in a mission-oriented approach. Um, as I just mentioned before, you know, going to the moon was not just aerospace. Solving climate is surely not just for the Department of Energy. Solving issues around well-being is definitely not just for the Department of Health. So it's not just about intersectoral that I talked about before. It's really that all-of-government approach. And that really then helps government become more dynamic. And that comes back to the book, because what we say in the book is that we don't have dynamic governments. We often have rigid, siloed governments, governments that have stopped insourcing the capacity and capability they need to govern modern-day complex challenges with other actors. And if you have consultified that capacity, if you're asking Deloitte to do your test and trace, where Deloitte had no expertise whatsoever on test and trace, so it's not surprising it went belly up, then you have a problem because you stop learning by doing. You've stopped the doing. How do they get these jobs? Because like you say, Deloitte had no, I mean, nobody had any expertise in test and trace, maybe well, a, few, a few countries in East Asia after the SARS epidemic. But so they, they've got no te technical expertise in, in whole swathes of, of, of what they make money from. So what's their pitch? We've got no experience. Give us a multi-billion pound contract. Well, with, I mean, just, I'm going to answer that question, but just to, to almost play not devil's advocate, but just to put another thing on the table, at the same time that Deloitte did test and trace, we had a which went very badly in the UK, the NHS did the vaccine rollout through a decentralized network of GP practices. And not only went well, it also became something we talked about, the politicians talked about it successful. So then the real question is, why didn't they invest more in this decentralized network of GP practices? Why did we not actually wake up and say, wow, what a great success story, and let's actually increase the investments within the NHS instead of doing what we're seeing today, which is that the real investments um, are, are not only not increasing, but there's a lot of stress within the system. We have junior doctors on strike, nurses on strike all over uh, the UK. So this is also a very interesting question because it's the parallel of the question you've asked. Now, what we look at is why are we hiring, it's, it's your question, consultants in areas that they have no expertise in. We saw this also in Australia where they spent over $6 million, uh, on McKinsey to do their climate strategy, and it was then reported to be a very faulty, problematic climate strategy. And the question there that we pose in the book is, well, there was also expertise within the government. It wasn't perfect expertise, but they have this organization called CSIRO, which actually has a lot of climate capability. So what is this kind of almost allergy to using not only your internal expertise, but not to actually invest in that expertise and just need that rubber stamp? Because that's what ultimately, ultimately it is, a rubber stamp of McKinsey or Deloitte that makes both governments and businesses, one of the subtitles is weakens our businesses. Why is that? And we look at two different issues. One is that this kind of Dismantling of state capacity has also led to gaps where sometimes literally even just numbers of people don't exist. I experienced this with the COVID-19 recovery in Italy where, you know, the Treasury basically outsourced the recovery to uh, – I keep talking about McKinsey, but there's lots of these consulting companies. It's BCG, Bain, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and BCG's so on. BCG's Boston Consulting yeah, Group. Yeah, Boston Consulting Group. Um, 
And so one thing is that as a consequence of not just the austerity, but the dismantling of state capacity, there often is the need to bring in others to help you out. But when those others don't have the expertise, that's the real kind of interesting challenge. Because of course, there's lots of expertise in universities, for example. And I'm not just saying this because I'm an academic, but I know some top climate experts around the world, like at the Potsdam Institute in Germany, they have amazing climate science. That would be a more natural place, right, to go to for climate uh, expertise. But the rubber stamp of the consulting companies uh, is something that is looked upon as justifying, as making look good a government that is fearful, especially on the on the back of so much kind of government bashing, mm. um, that somehow there isn't that expertise inside government. Mm. In, um, and, and also sometimes to make uncomfortable decisions. So this is also something that we, you know, don't blame consultants. We say that both with businesses and government, sometimes letting someone else not so much take the blame, but have their kind of brand on it allows you to maybe do some controversial activities in the private sector. We look, for example, at the downsizing trend, the financialization trend by saying, oh, it was, you know, recommended by or rubber stamped by a consulting company. It might go down, uh, uh, the throat easier. Um, and so in that case, we say government, uh, sorry, businesses should actually own up to the decisions they're made as opposed to just requiring that rubber stamp of the consulting company. But also there's a risk averseness. There's a fear of making mistakes. And what's interesting, I've talked about this in other books, that whereas we celebrate risk-taking and making mistakes in the private sector, as soon as a civil servant makes a mistake, you know, bang, front page of the Daily Mail in this country, there's other... Actually, there's not that many tabloids around the world. This country has a, a mm. big I mean, tabloid debil- debil- industry. That's about it, right? Sorry? Built yeah, in yeah, Germany. Yeah, and that's exactly, about it. exactly. New York Post. Yeah, I mean, there are, but it's just incredible here, um, just the power they have. We've we've learned it in the recent uh, Harry and Meghan uh, discussions. Mm. But um, but but it's it's not just the tabloids. It's a, you know, public servants, civil servants are not allowed to make mistakes, which is a problem. This is something we talk about. Trial and error and error. You would not learn how to ride a bike if you did not fall off. So the fact that governments, you know, part of the consequence of outsourcing, of privatizing, of consultifying is in fact what Lord Agnew, the conservative uh, lord who made this accusation, you know, that uh, Whitehall was getting infantilized. Infantilized means you're kind of becoming a baby. You're not learning. You're, mm. you're, you're not growing up. You're still an infant. And this was a Tory lord saying... Whitehall is being infantilized. And so, you know, this is one of the biggest problems that even though you might be doing it out of fear because you'd prefer someone else to be taking the risk so you don't go blame when things go wrong, you ultimately will get addicted. You will require that help constantly, right? Because you're not growing up. You're not building that capacity. And this is one of the things we talk about. We say that, you know, the reason the sector, because it's the consulting industry that we kind of focus on, not just consultants, um, is problematic is that the business model itself kind of relies on that next contract uh, uh, following. Whereas if you're a really good therapist, for example, you don't want your client to be in therapy their whole life. That probably means you're a bad therapist. Mm, The principal agent problem. Exactly, exactly. Can you explain this quickly, the principal agent problem? Well, it's it's just about incentives. I mean, if if you know, I mean, the principal agent problem can be applied to different types of problems. But in this case, it's that if there is, um, we would call it asymmetric information in terms of a market failure, then the agent that you are, if you want, you know, consulting for, doesn't necessarily have knowledge 
about, you know, the contract in this case. And in fact, this is one of the things we talk about, which is that there is a veil of secrecy and lack of transparency in the contract. So in South Africa, for example, you might have, well, we have had consultants who, the same consultant is advising ESCOM, which is a state-owned energy company, and it's also advising the Ministry of Finance, which in theory is regulating uh, ESCOM, right? So you can't be on both sides of the street. And if you are, that better be very transparent and known to the government. And so one of the, you know, this kind of conflict of interest and- Was or, that legal? Well, that's what's really striking, actually, that it's legal. And we talk about all the different uh, consultants who are both advising the fossil fuel industry while at the same time advising on ESG metrics, right? As though it's all fine and the same. Of course, it's not. You can't be helping and actually in some ways fostering a fossil fuel industry to be increasingly successful in making record-level profits today while, you know, on the other side of the street, pretending that you're an expert around uh, environmental and social governance metrics, which is all about companies actually becoming greener, more societal, um, you know, uh, more good for society. There's lots of amazing stories in the book. And like I said at the top, that's why it's really riveting, these case studies of, of, of failure. Uh, but one of the more dazzling ones is the story of healthcare.gov, of course, tied up with Obamacare. Can you tell us a little bit about healthcare.gov, why it failed, and, and what that has to do with consultants? Sure. I mean, it's actually part of a much bigger problem because one of the capabilities we say that has been decimated within governments is actually their ability to govern digital platforms. Um, and one of the areas, by consequence, that is increasingly consultified, so consultants are being brought into, has to do with um, precisely that area, the kind of, let's just call it the digital area of government. Now, this is not a small uh, uh, problem in 21st century, 22nd century soon, <laughs> uh, 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 capitalism, if you don't know how to govern digital platforms, you won't be able to have a climate strategy, a health strategy. Think of the infodemic side of COVID-19. In fact, I did a report on which countries globally did better in COVID-19 and actually were, was countries that actually had invested in areas including digital platforms because of that very important information processing side of things, including, by the way, test and trace, which we touched on before. So healthcare.gov, of course, is famous because the U.S. government, as we know, doesn't really have a public uh, health program. A lot of people in the U.S. die actually not because they're sick, but because they can't afford health care. Uh, this is one of the reasons I'm very proud to live in Europe. Um, the NHS in the U.K. is very important in terms of giving everyone access to uh, health care. Um, now, the problem is that what was also called Obamacare. So Obama finally gets through a program, which, by the way, Hillary Clinton had tried to get through when her husband was um, uh, president. It had a web you know, site where people could access in order to sign up for uh, health care uh, in the U.S. from the Obamacare uh, uh, program. And as soon as it opened up, it basically crashed and government was blamed. But actually, it wasn't government that had uh, uh, um, governed it. It had been outsourced. It had been outsourced to private actors. Um, and this is a huge problem, first of all, because it's central. Like how you actually govern the digital side of a program, whether it's health or climate, is central. So if you are outsourcing your core, that's a problem. If you're outsourcing something that's peripheral, perhaps it doesn't matter, catering or something, right? So... Um, and this is actually not just around health, as I just mentioned. I mean, if you look at 
the weakening of government is precisely around those kind of areas. And so unless they're investing in their own digital capacity, they won't be stronger and they will become increasingly needing to have others to come in. But in that particular case, also those that had been brought in to do the digital side weren't very capable. I mean, it costs $1.7 billion. $1.7 billion for a website is just extraordinary. And on the first day of opening, six people could use it. People, like you say, blamed the state. Yeah. But they should have been blaming management consultancies. Well, that's... To a significant yeah. part. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, the irony, because I just mentioned before that part part of the answer to why governments are allowing consultants to have so much power is the risk, right? The kind of uh, worry of getting things wrong and thinking that somehow management consultant will not only bring in maybe some expertise, which as I just mentioned, often we don't have, but also get the blame if things go wrong and yet things continue to go wrong and they're not actually held accountable. So even how those contracts are designed, they've actually kind of become almost risk-free for the consultants. And so it's not only costing government a lot of money, in theory, they're sometimes pitching it as though it's going to help them uh, uh, cost less. So, you know, reduce deficits by letting others undertake uh, public uh, programs. So we have kind of three different problems. It's costing a lot of money. It's actually not delivering. And when things go belly up, the blame comes back to government. So it's actually, you know, a, a toxic cocktail. And you'd think that it would be better known how problematic this is. And I think one of the things we were kind of pleasantly surprised, but not so surprised, is just how much the book has spoken to people both in the business community and government communities at different levels, city, you know, local, regional, national, global, um, precisely because it's it's almost scandalous at every level. I must say, though, that we're not there to blame consultants. In fact, we spoke to many different consultants especially young kind of 30-year-old consultants who go into the industry also wanting to do good. You know, like this isn't a book about the bad guys trying to do terrible things around the world. Um, And they are disillusioned. You know, when you see that kind of operating on both sides of the street or the, not hypocrisy, but that kind of treating any of the latest trends, whether it's ESG and climate or shareholder value maximization on kind of the other extreme in terms of problematic uh, tendencies in modern-day corporate governance is almost equally available places to kind of leech onto to provide your consulting services, you start to lose faith that this is actually really about making the world a better place. Um, we do make um, some specific recommendations at the end because it's not enough just to complain and to kind of denounce. And we talk about the need to make contracts much more transparent precisely on all the different types of areas that you're consulting in, so you can see those conflicts of interest, Uh, making contracts so they actually embed learning, precisely so you don't have those kind of repeat contracts so that you actually show that you're cumulatively adding value so the organization in question ultimately shouldn't need you. Uh, that, That example I gave from therapy before, if you have someone in therapy their entire life, you're probably not doing your job very well. Um... And I think, you know, if, if you look at all the different problems we have globally, they do require lots of different actors where the consultants might have a role. But first of all, we need to make sure they actually have expertise in that area. So we should definitely become much more aware of where those areas of expertise lie. But also, how do we make sure the ecosystem between these different actors is truly kind of a symbiotic, mutualistic one and not a parasitic one? Consultancy is a strange one because I'd, I'd heard of the term before I graduated. I graduated in 2007. Bad luck. So it was a really interesting year because at the start of the year as an undergraduate, every, you know, all you could hear at University College London where you teach, 
McKinsey, Deloitte, Macquarie, HSBC, Banco Santander, everybody had an internship with a bank or a consultancy. And then within a year, it dropped like a lead balloon. So it was really fascinating to see that. But if I if I said to my dad as, as a graduate, oh, I've got a job as a consultant, he would say, what the hell is that? Yeah. What do you do? <laughs> and I, I mean, he thinks anyway, actually, yeah. with Navarro Media. But um, it's one of those things where I had a pet theory, which is, in, particularly in Anglo-America, since the late 1990s, we have a massive overproduction of very clever generalist graduate mm. students, humanities in particular, but also, you know, in the sciences, and they don't really know what they're going to do. They're sort of aimless, but very ambitious, very conscientious people. And it seems to me lots of those people gravitated towards consultancy as a job. And it almost seems to me, and obviously I don't think you've written that in the book, it almost strikes me as a shame mm-hmm. because having this concentration of people that want to do problem solving, highly competent, it seems like a yeah. massive misallocation of human resources, basically. But we do talk about that in the book. We say, wouldn't it be great if all this you know, um, desire to do good in the world actually also resulted in more of these young people going into government. Mm. And we also talk about this self-fulfilling prophecy that the more we've had this kind of backlash against government, what Tony Jutt in his book, Ill Fares the Land, calls a discursive battle, like literally, you know, just talking about administration instead of kind of like a ministry out there trying to do really difficult things, or what I've talked about, you know, market fixing, not market shaping, de-risking, not taking risks, um, simply enabling, redistributing, and regulating instead of being a true value creator. It's not actually a coincidence that it becomes much more sexy to go into the McKinsey's, the Macquarie's, yeah. even though I have a whole theory about Macquarie. Anyway, the, the Goldman Sachs's and the Googles, <laughs> right? So um, there is that self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's not a surprise I've actually you know, taken the time to set up a whole institute for innovation and public purpose at UCL, which is all about rethinking the state, bringing purpose to the center of policymaking, but also really having a theory of value creation with the state at the center, not to say the state is more important than any other actor, but it's very, it's important in terms of leading, at least in democratically elected societies, and then using all the tools that has to bring together that kind of stakeholder value, lots of different actors to solve really complex problems, uh, drive collective intelligence, a sexy word, but that needs to be embedded in the contracts. You can't have collective intelligence if, again, intellectual property rights are abused. They're currently too wide, too strong, too upstream, and yet an intellectual property right is a contract that for 17 years the state has given to the private sector. So you need to govern that in the public interest. Um, and the capacity to do so, I think, has withered away to govern those particular contracts, but any contract, whether it's a procurement contract or an intellectual property right should have the public interest at the center because that's the, that's the point of government. It's not just to help companies make profits. Do you think there's been a, a cultural shift as well, which is the fault here? So, you know, I'm a materialist. You have a materialist explanation for all this happening. But as an ancillary point, you know, in the if you're an ambitious young person in the 50s, 60s, and you want to change the world, you'd go work for a big government ministry. And you would say, I want to go work for the Department of X, or I want to go work for NASA. Mm-hmm. Um and after the 60s, there's, there's this idea that actually, particularly progressives, thought, oh, if you want to change the world, you need to be like Jane Jacobs, or you need to be like Ralph Nader. Mm. You need to be on the outside. Right. You need to be That's lobbying. That's a really good point. You need mm-hmm. to be lobbying, and you need to be this active interest representation, but not institutional power. Do you think that was a kind of a, a big social error, actually? Mm. That all of a sudden, 
tons of talented people stopped going into precisely institutions where we need them to be? I don't know. I mean, first of all, I don't want to exaggerate the point about the people who are working in government. I mean, I work with governments globally, including in the UK, and it's full of incredibly, not only smart, but people really with ethics at the center. They go into government because they're interested in, you know, to put it simply, making the world a better place. I think what's happened, though, is that there's so much backlash on government. There, there's such a cartoon image. You know, I talk about this in the entrepreneurial state, like the kind of Kafkaian bureaucrat and then the cool, you know, Steve Jobs and, and uh, Elon Musk today, that actually what we've seen is also a hemorrhaging of that talent. I mean, so in other words, it's been a much more explicit, intentional <laughs> problem than sort of what you just described. Also, in the 1960s, I learned this when I was running Mission Economy, the average age in the mission control room for Apollo was 26, right? So crazy. Very, very young. Average age. Huh? There, was, there was younger people. And yet, at that time, already a lot of this outsourcing was happening to the consultants, literally actually to McKinsey. <laughs> in, in that particular case, McKinsey began in the mid-20s. And the head of procurement for NASA, this guy Ernest Brackett, said, if we continue this, we won't even, you know, not only won't we know how to get to the moon, <laughs> but we won't even know how to write the contracts with the private sector because they were working with lots of private sector companies. Um, and, and his quote was, we will get captured by brochuremanship. It's endearing because they didn't really have PowerPoints at the time that, you know, that, that, that these consultants <laughs> have today. They, they had sexy brochures. So the idea that you would get captured by the brochure was not to say, oh, we don't want to work with the private sector. It was more like we won't know which private sector companies to work with. And I would actually argue that's what we have today. We have um, definitely, if you look at the contracts, we have a very um, unbalanced power in terms of even the legal expertise. But the problem is not that there's not enough public or private investment. Is that partnership is not it's not a dynamic one. It's not purpose oriented. It's not fair. It's not just. There's often again socialization of risk, privatization of rewards, and you can fix that in the contracts. NASA actually had a clause in its contracts: no excess profits. It's great, eh? Not no profits. You don't get to the moon with philanthropy, charity. Of course you can make profits, but not excess. In excess of what? Of what you've done, right? So as soon as you have a whole kind of narrative and discourse that all the value is getting created in the private sector and the state is just there to facilitate, enable, work on the sides, then it's much easier to get these very problematic contracts that socialize risks and privatize rewards and allow excess profits to be earned by some who are doing good stuff, but not everything, Somebody watching this from the left might think, oh, this is just social democracy, very vanilla. I actually think you understate mm. your radicalism. I think it's very radical. Well, no, because Th the that's why people don't like this, by the way. Nope. I get a lot of hate. <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing about not private-public partnership, mm. but public-private partnership, and yeah. you, you might not agree with this, I think in some ways is reminiscent of the better features of the Chinese system. Mm. Because there was a great talk by Eric X. Lee, who talks about the Chinese Communist Party. Too, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And he, he made a point on a separate, uh, separate interview. And he said, China has a market economy. Mm. We have private firms that try and make profit. He says, the point is the interest of those firms, the interest of capital more generally to make profits, mm. does not supersede political authority. Political authority always, super and obviously that has, bad expressions and manifestations. Mm. But the point is, political authority always supersedes the private interests of businesses or, or, or capital. And that's basically what you're saying, isn't it? This idea that political authority, democratically accountable... Yeah, but that democratically accountable is the key thing in terms of big not being a China yeah. Yeah, fan. But the, the, the mm -hmm. same theme is there, right? That political authority, mm -hmm. with that accountability from, from people and the mandate from people, sets the agenda around, like you say, particular missions. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And that supersedes yeah. the interests of capital. That's hugely radical, isn't so, it? I once gave an interview, actually, I can't remember, I think it was to the Financial Times, where I said that China's learning from the United States at the same time that the United States is unlearning from itself. So again, everything that's you know smart in our smartphones and not stupid was actually invested in by government, mission-oriented government, the internet, GPS, touchscreen, and Siri, all fruits of government investments. Um, in some cases with private sector uh, collaboration, but it was actually through a public sector problem that was required. So the internet came about because we needed the satellites to communicate. Um, uh, GPS, the Navy invested in it to know where all the ships were in the seas. So it's not actually, I mean, today it feels more like maybe a Chinese or kind of a you know top-down planning system, but that's actually how the United States developed. They talk Jefferson, but act Hamilton. People should only understand that because now the Hamilton musical. <laughs> but basically, you know, Hamilton was a very important U.S. politician who at the time advocated for an industrial strategy, whereas Jefferson was more free marketeer. The U.S. has always talked the talk of the free market, but acted actually on a much more visible hand, not the invisible hand. Um, where I think, so the work on missions, coming back to here's a, a speech this morning, is all about that. In other words, or it should be about that. I mean, he's using the word. I'm very curious to you know know and and perhaps work with them on actually making this real. The how, the how is harder than just the word. It's all about actually having a plan that's really difficult. You know, remember Kennedy said we're going to the moon because it's hard, not because it's easy. Yeah. So this isn't about one side facilitating. I'm Italian. Facilitating means making something easier for someone else, like the word de-risking. So it's not about making it easier, de-risking someone else. It's about tackling those really difficult challenges together. Now, that requires a goal. That's going to be the end goal. But the how along the way really matters, how you design the financial institution with conditionality. You're not just giving out money. It's conditional on change happening within different sectors. You don't do it top down and tell them what to do because that could hurt innovation. But you do it with a strong direction. That's that public-private versus private-public bit that we talked about before. It means uh, learning how to do, again, outcomes-oriented budgeting. So you're not just giving a bit of money here and there, but you actually have a goal where the budget itself, even at the city level, zero knife crime, requires its own budget. You can't just give a bit of money here, a bit of money there, and then stir the soup and hope for the best. Um, and, and so I think what's interesting in China, though, is that they obviously have very kind of clear targets. They had such high poverty that they really alleviated a lot of people out of poverty. They also are spending a huge amount on greening their entire manufacturing base because they have a huge pollution problem. Um, so they don't have that myth of, oh, this is just going to happen through the free market. One of their problems, though, is they don't really have what I talk about in the entrepreneurial state, a decentralized network of different types of public actors. They have very large, for example, sure. the Chinese Development Bank, which gave huge amounts of money to Huawei. Huawei would not exist without a guaranteed loan that was over $5 billion from the Chinese Development Bank. By the way, Elon Musk got over $5 billion from the U.S. government for his different companies, including in the early stage of Tesla. It was a, it was a guaranteed loan from government. So, um, But in China, you have just these big chunks of kind of money from institutions like the Chinese Development Bank. In the U.S., they had DARPA, they had the National Science Foundation, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, the venture capital arm of the CIA, InQtel. But it has, at least in the U.S., been more around their military-industrial complex. And what I've been arguing for is why do we only take things seriously when it's about war? And this is an important question today, given that we have a terrible, tragic war happening. But look what happened even in Germany. After months saying there was no money and there was a lot of pressure in government having to cut its budget, 
100 billion was found overnight for the war effort. That happens all the time with war because we take it seriously. Um, and I'm very anti-war, <laughs> any war. Uh, but isn't it interesting that for war, money comes out of the woodwork? Why doesn't it come out of the woodwork when we have war on poverty, when we want to strengthen our health systems, when we want net zero targets, when we have these social problems in our streets? So really, it's what I've been talking about for a long time is the need to create a mission-oriented economy around our social challenges, starting with the SDGs that we talked about. And what this book, The Big Con, talks about is that that requires capacity. And if we continue to consultify that capacity, you won't know how to implement. You won't know how to work with others. And that's important because, you know, I sometimes get accused as being just kind of, you know, folklorically loving the state. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm the state's kind of, I don't want to say biggest enemy, but biggest provocateur saying, what are you doing? <laughs> you, you can't, you know, become agile, flexible, capable, and creative unless you actually invest internally in becoming a learning organization. You said you have haters. Well, who just, are they? Oh God. Um, I find that very hard to believe. If you're a woman, if you are progressive, if you're lucky enough to actually get media attention, but especially, this is the big bit, have impact. So different governments or even businesses start to implement some of your ideas. Oof, are you dangerous? Um, if you're just ranting and no one's listening, you're less dangerous. So I think when your ideas start to have impact, and I feel very honored because I'm not the only one you know, who has some good ideas. I feel honored that I've had the opportunity to work with governments carefully because it's not just about going to lecture, doing a TED Talk, and then leaving. Again, that's why I set up a whole institute to take care, have teams that help governments implement new policies, but also train because that's the main thing we do. We have an educational program you are uh, much more dangerous to those who would love to see the state less able, less, not so much large, because I've never been about large versus small state, but a more capable state, um, a state that is truly purpose-oriented, a state that knows how to get a good deal in a contract is not great news for those who are making either a lot of money or having a lot of power by having a weak state. So do you think that some of the people you take target in this book, and I know you've said already many good consultants and you can see the role for certain services not being with inside a firm or with inside a public agency. Navarro Media has an accountant. We don't have an accountant inside the organization. That's something that somebody else does, for instance. Mm. But this trillion... But is accounting your core business? Precisely, right? That's exactly so why it. Would, yeah. Exactly. Is governing a digital platform a core business of a government in order to make sure that the next pandemic, it can actually deal with the infodemic side of the crisis? Of course. Yeah. This is a trillion dollar industry, though. So like you say, you putting this in, in the crosshairs, and you are an influential person... Mm. That must put a mark on a, on your back a little bit with some of these people. I mean, I've read the, the write-up in the Financial Times, for instance. Perfectly civilized and polite, but there was clearly an undercurrent, which is, you know, don't make too much noise about this industry. Oh, really? I haven't read that. Ha have have you not threats? read it? Have they made threats? They're going to come threats. and knock on the door? <laughs> not threats, but there's, no, there's, huge, there's huge vested interest, basically, of in us, in us oh, no, not of having this conversation. Yeah, I thought that was actually quite funny, to be honest. I mean, the comments that were so defensive, um, and then all you had to read was the comments that came afterwards by others. I mean, I almost didn't have to reply. I think the fact that we purposefully, and we say this several times in the book, that this is just as much a challenge to those that are hiring and that are and that have stopped investing within their own capacity as it is to those that are making a lot of money by profiting from those that don't have that capacity. It's really a wake-up call to everyone because I truly believe that in the long run, we all will benefit 
you know, the planet will benefit, the sustainability of the planet, but also all these problems we have around inequality will benefit if we actually have more capable actors all around. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And thank you. It's a great book. Thanks so much. Congratulations. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.